Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you've taken bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful Parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. Do you worry about your kids on screens? Then you're going to love this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you are thriving, when you have common peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindfulness Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives and to take family and life to a new level of awakening. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years, and I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course. I'm the mom of two girls, ages 7 and 10. So thank you so much for being here today, my friend. If you have questions about screens, this is the episode for you. I have an interview today with Devorah Heitner. And Devorah is uh, a speaker, workshop leader, a consultant, and she has written the book, Screenwise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. And she helps parents and helps educators understand how to navigate things and and um, how to how to calm down our fears as well which is really amazing I think you're gonna really appreciate this episode on this on screen wise and and with Devorah's expertise in this area I wanted to let you know that it is going into the summertime here if you are listening in real time in June 2017 if you are not well listening in real time welcome welcome we have some interviews and sometimes I talk with my good friend Carla and sometimes I just talk to you myself here on the mindful mama podcast but we are going into summertime and I just want to let you know that 
I am working on something really exciting right now. I am working on a book. I'm working on a book, so I have a lot of lot of time dedicated to that going on right now in my world. So if you are looking to work with me, right now I have some courses available that you can find on hunteryoga.com slash work. And the courses are the Stop Yelling Formula, the Daily Practice Course, and the Mindful Parenting Self-Study is there as a course too. So the Stop Yelling Formula is a way to stop yelling, a five-step system to help you finally stop yelling. Daily Practice Course is a 28-day program to guide you into creating your own nourishing daily yoga and mindfulness practices designed for busy moms. And the Mindful Parenting Self-Study is an eight-week course to give you all the skills you need and the communication skills, mindfulness and communication to really have an awakened family. A note about the self-study is that you do not get the live coaching calls that happen when we will run the course again live in September. And, um, and that is a great, wonderful part of that course. To support the podcast, I really encourage you to go over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review, leave a rating, leave a review. It just takes a couple moments and it really helps the podcast out a lot. It helps it show up in iTunes algorithm. So please do go leave a review. And I think that's it. On to this interview with Devorah. So I'm so thrilled to have back Devorah Heitner, and Devorah is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in the Digital World, and I've already introduced her. And Devorah, I have to give you props because <laughs> you you get double props because this is the second time we you've been on the podcast for me and we had some, some recording difficulties. So yay, thank you so much for coming on um, the Mindful Mama podcast. Happy to be back. <laughs> we we are we are certainly we are certainly here and recording this time. So um, I'm so thrilled you're here because I get questions all the time in my mindful parenting course um, about screens and about our technology. I mean, it's we live in such a different world than we lived in before when we were when we were kids, and, and they have screens everywhere and technology everywhere, and there's. Um, there's a lot of concerns, you know, there's a lot of concerns about what are the screens doing to kids? Um, how can we help them navigate that? Some people feel like, you know, they want to have their kids off screens altogether until they're seven years old. And some people are giving them cell phones at seven years old. So there's like a huge range of ways people approach this. But um, I'm just wondering for you, how did you get how did you get interested in this work? And, and how did you how did you decide to, to dive into studying uh, technology and how, how we in, interact with it as with children? Sure. So I have a, a background as a media maker. And then my PhD is in media history. And one of the things that we study as media historians is the kind of cycles of anxiety around how technology will transform society, family life, any of those issues. So people were very concerned that home telephones were going to be tremendously disruptive to family life. And now I think most of us can't imagine living in a home where, I mean, many of us don't even have home lines anymore, but we can't imagine living in a home where from our home, we couldn't make a phone call 
for example, like if we had to walk out of our house to, you know, use, use a communication device, I think that would be sort of stunning for most of us. So that would be crazy. Can I interject here? Yeah. Can I interject here for a second? Cause did, did you, since you studied the, uh, the history of technology and things like that, did you, do you know whether people had issues with like reading, with, like kids reading too much? Cause I'm curious oh, about it. Cause that's like that, a that was a huge concern that, <laughs> folks were really worried that kids would just be addicted to novels or comic books or other things. And now if our kid is reading a novel, whether it's a graphic novel, like a comic book or all text, I think most of us are pretty excited and we're patting ourselves on the back because our kids aren't on screens and we have all this negative value towards screens and kind of ascribe a lot of positive value toward reading text on the page. And that wasn't always the case. Uh, There was tremendous worry that novels would be, you know, scandalous and kids would be totally addicted to them and wouldn't want to do other things, wouldn't want to, you know, fulfill their responsibilities. So our anxieties about kids are always part of society and the, the idea that this is the worst generation ever um, and that these kids have been wrecked and ruined is also very uh, prominent in many, many eras. And we see that in our own time where people are very concerned about kids and screen time. So when television became more popular for kids in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of worry that kids were becoming zombies to TV. Again, now TV seems in some ways rather innocuous compared to what kids can see on YouTube or uh, some of the other places where they can find content. So it's a very, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. And as I I finished graduate school and was a professor and so I was teaching young people during the sort of social media explosion. I started teaching college in 2007 and, you know, Facebook and uh, MySpace and other campus-based social media was huge. And I saw how transformative it was for my students in both positive and, and negative ways. And then I also had my students, because I taught kids media as a course, had my students interviewing third graders about their media ecology in different communities. And I just learned a lot about parents and caregivers and kids attitudes toward access to gaming devices and TV content, internet content and search. And that started me down the road to creating my company, raising digital natives and doing a lot of speaking. Uh, And since then I've been speaking around the world. I've spoken in Canada and Singapore and other places as well as all over the U S and I've gotten, I got to write, a curriculum with a school counselor about social and emotional learning in the digital age. And then in the fall of 2016, published my book for parents and educators screen wise that you mentioned. And so it's been a really exciting journey and the conversation has only gotten more intense right there. They're constantly, you know, if you look at your own social media feed, there's articles about kids and screens and social media pretty much every day that you could look at and get scared by or, maybe be excited about. There's also this huge push for STEM. So lots of kids are coding and doing creative things with taxes. There's just a lot happening. And I bet that conversation has gotten more personal to you because since you started all your studies of this, you, you've had your own children, right? Exactly. So I had my son uh, eight and a half years ago and I was still teaching college then. And that, that definitely n- not just becoming a parent myself, but also becoming part of a community of parents because Other parents were asking lots of questions about, should I let my kid play with my phone? Should I post pictures of my kid and my own social media, right? And so you have these really interesting conversations and very strong responses, you know, parents writing these blog posts, like I went to the playground and I saw mom on her phone and she's missing her kid's entire childhood. And then 20 people, you know, defending uh, that decision and saying, you don't know what people are dealing with. And I mean, so much intensity around this issue. And a lot of judgment as well. So I'm trying to wade into a place of 
giving people real information, sharing published research, and also helping people calm down a little and be a little less panicked in their responses. Because I think no matter what your family philosophy is about technology, you don't want to come from a place of fear. Mm, I <clears throat> I can absolutely agree with you there. Yeah, we want to come from a place of calm and a loving place and not from a fearful place. But there are are there, I mean, there are real concerns, aren't there? I mean, there have been studies published about, you know, the brain, maybe sensory overload, things about lack of sleep, kids being hyper aroused and, and not being able to not being able to take care of themselves, kids who are impulsive and moody and can't pay attention, right? Like these are the things that parents are scared about, right? Absolutely. I think parents are scared that kids' social skills are might decline in the face of different different modes of interaction, parents are nervous about distraction because we're all distracted. So why would we expect that our children wouldn't be? So these are all valid issues for parents to be concerned about. But it's also helpful to recognize that people thought novels would distract kids and addict kids. And now we're excited when our kid is reading a novel. My kid is deep into the Lightning Thief series. And, you know, I could say that he's addicted or use some of those negative words that I might use if he felt strongly about a TV series or a YouTuber. But instead, I'm like, oh, he's loving these books. He's eating them up. He wants to stay up all night reading them. I have to hide them when he goes to sleep. You know, but I don't look at myself and shame myself as a parent and say, what What did I do wrong? Why is my kid so excited by this book series? Um, and But parents do, when their kid is that excited about Minecraft, sometimes think, where did I go wrong? And that's where I think we need to get out of that judgment and say, well, actually, what's so enticing about this? And that doesn't mean we want our child to read instead of sleep, just like we don't want them to play Minecraft instead of sleep or text their friends instead of sleep, right? When they need to sleep or they need to do homework or do other activities. But we can look at this in a less panicked way and in a more positive way and say, wow, Minecraft must be a really engaging game. What's going on there? Why, why is it so compelling for my kid? And must be really well designed. Let's, let's have a look. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I love the the sort of middle path ground that you take to this, like, let's be curious about this rather than be so judgmental. Like, what is it about this that is really fascinating to kids? Um, I like I like your point of view, um, or your your point of looking at things in, in that way. Um, so what are what are some milestones we should think about with with the screens? Because you know, in my own home, we, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I guess, says no screens before two years old. So we followed that. I mean, I really wanted my kids to be um, growing up as babies, really um, attuned to real life, three-dimensional world, et cetera, not to a screen world. I didn't want them to be hyper aroused. Um, we are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It is really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to 
think critically. They have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family, follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs, and it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. What are, did you follow that milestone? Do you recommend that milestone? And what are some other um, uh, benchmarks that you you look towards for healthy screen interaction? Yeah, and I mean, the AAP has even revised a little bit that that real concern. I think what we know is that there's no super benefit to screens before two, not so much that there'll be harm. That's really not as known. I mean, obviously no one thinks it's a great idea to sort of lock your kid in a room with, with screens and, and not interact. What, what, what babies and toddlers really benefit from and, and all children certainly, but especially at that young age and that pre-verbal age is just really loving interactions with the adults in, in their lives and that consistency and that response, you know, when they make sounds, we mirror them back. So we're too much on our screens. We know that that's not great for babies, whether they're seeing the screen with us or not. Um, no one really believes that babies are super harmed by, you know, the ad that's playing at the gas station, or I, I haven't found any studies to, to suggest. I mean, if you really don't want your kids to see any screens, you would have to vacate the premises. You know, where would you go? Um, if you and your spouse are watching television while you're nursing your baby. Um, it, does that mean your child has had, you know, screen time that's going to damage them? Some people would say yes. I, that's less of a concern to me. I mean, I chose not to watch super scary things while I was nursing, but I did watch <laughs> some West Wing and, you know, other things that I found relaxing. Oh my um, God. You know, I have you're to... spending a lot of time on the couch with that baby. And some of it <laughs> for me was screen time. And so that's kind of like referred screen time for the kid. I, so I, I have to I think, interject here yeah. with a funny story, though. Uh, when we were we were doing that, when my youngest daughter was little, I think we should, she had nursed and we had fallen asleep. She'd fallen asleep in my arms. And so we were watching, um, 
I think we were watching like Million Dollar Baby, which is like a great movie. Anyway, we were watching it. And at one point, um, my husband got like, it was like this super moment or something. And he like jumped up off the couch and like yelled something. And and the poor baby, she was like, oh, my God. Like, she started crying. Like, what's going on? It was hilarious. I don't know. I'm sure everybody has some sort of version of that. Oh, yeah. And I do think, you know, there are people who probably do watch more exciting things when they're (laughs) nursing and their kids are sleeping. I think it could be fine. My husband spent a lot of time reading on his phone, holding our baby when he was baby. I think for me, though, as a parent of a single child, too, you know, it's those subsequent kids that are going to get referred screen time from their older siblings. And I think that families have to navigate that as best they can. I mean, you might not want your teenager playing, you know, single person shooter games in front of the baby, but you might, you know, your, your one and a half year old might end up seeing some Sesame Street or some wild crats with your five year old. And, you know, again, what we know is that they're probably not learning from it. That is probably not, not having the same, whereas your five year old can learn from wild crats. Your one and a half year old probably isn't really learning from wild crats. They're maybe learning from the five year old. Right. So that's what we, we know as, as scholars of, of, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's, I'm not, an education scholar. So I can refer you to a lot of the education literature. I'm a media scholar. So I can tell you more about the history again of the moral panic. But the AAP has been very conservative on this front. I think what people imagine is that little kids could do something like learn Mandarin or, you know, another language from from media from, you know, baby Einstein type, type of videos. And that that's not true. We know that little kids don't learn from that kind of screen time. And as we we get older, the milestones you want to think about are when do you let them watch independently? Because as much as possible when they're little, we also want to co-view with them so we can interact with them around what they're watching. And that's how they really learn. That's where the learning comes in. Or when do you let them make their independent choices about media from preschool on? Your child's going to be influenced by their peers. They're going to come home and say, I want to check out you know, Wild Kratz or Thomas the Train or something they've heard about. And some schools do a lot to try to shut that, those influences out. And they don't want kids wearing, you know, character underpants or T-shirts or backpacks. But in most preschool and daycare environments, uh, kids are going to be exposed to hearing about mediated characters and situations. So how much are you kind of open to that? Do you, you know, I was always interested to hear from other parents. I always want to talk to other parents about media. So I say, what have you seen? That's great. What do you love? right? Just like you might want to hear about games or toys from other parents uh, or books, there might be a really great show that their kid loves that your kid might also love. So you want to find the things with little kids that you can stand as well, because you are going to be watching some of this too, or hearing about it. You don't want to choose something you can't stand, right? So I know many people who are haters on Thomas the Train or Caillou. I didn't really love either of those. As your kid gets older, they're going to be watching more independently. So you have to you want to know enough about their show so you can interact with them about it. You know, oh, what animal did they see on, on Wild Kratz this week? Um, what what did they discover? But you might not be sitting and watching with them. Mm-hmm. And then you want to think about how screen time leads to creativity. So another milestone would be when your child's ready to do some creating in an app, you know, maybe on a tablet. Like there's all these great drawing and music apps. Another milestone is when kids are ready to interact with other people. And that's a there's so many layers to this. So Many kids are playing games online with other people from a fairly young age. So that's mm-hmm. something as a parent, you really want to be aware of who are they playing with? And if there's an internet facilitated connection with another person, is that someone you know? Is that someone they know? Most parents probably don't want preschoolers doing that. But as kids get into elementary school, first, second, third grade, they may play Roblox or Minecraft with a friend. But do you want them to be able to play on a public server? You may want them to wait till fourth or fifth or sixth grade to do that. 
and what what the, what do they need to know to safely plan a public server? What kinds of information shouldn't they share about themselves? What kinds of comments or interactions should make them want to shut down playing with a certain person? Um, obviously, there's some very icky things that a stranger could say to your child, you know, in any game, right? And so there, most games have a chat. Most interactive games that you can play with other people online have a chat function. So someone could use bad language with your child or worse, right? So, you know, say things that are really upsetting and horrible. So you want to be aware of those possibilities and really think about when your child is ready for that milestone of first maybe playing with someone that's not in the room, maybe a friend that you know, or a cousin or a family member that's far away. And the next level could be playing with people they don't know. uh, But that's something you'd want to supervise and mentor them on. Another thing parents ask me a lot about is, you know, when should my child get an email account? Mm-hmm. And that could be a great time to go with a family shared email so that it's not private. It's not about someone communicating directly to your child that you don't uh, know about. You maybe you get a family email it kind of works the way the phone in the living room used to work. And the grandparents might email your child at that account, but you, everyone knows that you're seeing it too. It's not a place for secrets. It's not a place for, you know, private things. Um, and then your child, then if you see your child using the account in ways that are concerning to you, or you just maybe having an etiquette issue, you're right there to say, oh, you know, it seemed like you didn't really sign off, or you just walked away from that conversation, or here's a nicer way you could have said that, or that's an issue that you probably want to pick up the phone. That's a huge set of competencies when to teaching kids when we need to get off the screen and maybe into a phone call. Mm, and then the, the next. Well, okay. that's interesting because um, well, I, I have some thoughts about a bunch of the things you said, but like uh, I, I'm now I'm kind of wishing I could sort of backtrack because my 10 year old does have an email account. It is her own, <laughs> um, but I think it's on our server. I don't know. I'll have to talk to my husband about that. But it, I, and I'm thinking about this now, like one of the games they play is um, they play. Oh, what's it called? It's like this National Geographic game that has where they can, you know, they can personalize their own animals and they do this whole thing and and but the interactions they have are more like i don't know can i trade this tiara for your you know uh, plushie on the game you know it's like uh no it's not it's uh i'm blanking on it i'm forgetting the name it's like some kind of animal thing but uh, I never, you know, it's like, it is like, there's all these other people, all these other kids there around, but I don't I don't even know if there's a chat on that. Now, now I'm sort of curious, but to, to your larger point, come kind of what I'm hearing is that there should be um, transparency and, and conversations, you know, transparency from the parents about um, to, you know, to the developmental level about this is what I'm concerned about, you know, with this next milestone, with this um, playing with people around the world or playing, you know, having your own email. Like these are the things I'm concerned about and kind of being sort of honest and transparent in your conversations with your child about what is what is really possible. Is that kind of what I'm hearing from you? Absolutely. Right. And and really thinking twice, I would say just about the internet for little kids. You know, if you have a kindergartner or first, second grader, you know, once you open the door to search, then that door is open. And then that's where they think the answers to all their questions are. And that time is coming for you. So by the time you have a kid in middle elementary, you know, or late elementary, like third, fourth, fifth grade, it's hard to avoid. Your child can go to the library and use search. So I'm not saying, you know, search is the devil, but search is a lot to supervise. And for young kids who are just newly literate, 
uh, I would avoid search. And if they're playing a game independently on a tablet, think about whether the Wi-Fi even needs to be enabled. There's lots of games they can play that aren't needing Wi-Fi once you have the app itself. And so I really think about, especially if you can't be right there supervising, you know, making sure that they just aren't on the internet because the internet is really a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. And once your kid is using the internet on their own, if they're Googling, if they're downloading apps, first of all, I would strive for a permission-based culture and that they shouldn't download any apps without permission, certainly Mm -hmm. in elementary school. I mean, you do not want your kid just willy-nilly buying stuff or downloading even free things. And then secondly, they, they, it's just, it, there's a lot to understand about how search works. You can see some things that are very traumatic or negative. And so searching should be something that kids do with a teacher or a parent present, ideally in the beginning. And then as they get more experience with it, and as you start to trust their judgment, they may be able to search more independently. Um, YouTube is one of kids' most early used search engines and kids will use YouTube before they can even read using touch screens. And like they see content they like, they click on more content they like. Uh, my kid was watching train videos at an early age and almost saw, you know, a police shooting on a train in Oakland. Right. Oh my so it's very easy to be looking at content that you think is really positive. My kid's interest in trains, not something I need needed to discourage you know, and, oh, we're going to San Francisco. Let's look at the BART train. Oh, wait, that's not the BART train video I want you to see. Right. So it's a very easy, uh, it's very easy for your kid to stumble on some very terrifying content that you don't want for them. So is there a way to, isn't there like a YouTube kids version? Like where, I I don't know about that. Are there ways to sort of cut down on the, the violent or sexual stuff easily like that? Like, a, a well, there is a YouTube kids version. Most kids past first grade won't be interested in it because mm-hmm. it's so limited and they'll want to see things like skateboarding tricks and rainbow loom bracelets and bottle flipping and things that kids are excited about. And the content in kids, YouTube will seem limited, but for younger kids, absolutely. But there's really no substitute for being right there. If they're going to be just like you would go with them to the library, you know, I mean, yeah. if they're going to be opening the, uh, themselves up to a world of content. And that's actually where TV, you may feel more comfortable with your first grader choosing from their three favorite shows on Netflix, but you know that Netflix doesn't carry anything that's, I mean, mm. there may be things that are totally inappropriate for a third grader, but the things that they're interested in on Netflix or, you know, your list of pre-approved shows could be fine um, or Hulu or any of those services. Whereas once you get to just the wide open internet, you're really talking about very raw stuff. And I, I think it's really tricky. There are filters. You're you're free to use them. You can talk to your kids about why you use them, but they're going to go to other people's homes and go to the library and even at school and potentially not have filters. So you have to also have to talk to them about what to do if you do see naked people or something scary or something that you know isn't for kids. And that's, that's a milestone conversation. And then Mm -hmm. the first time they have Mm -hmm. seen something that's really upsetting, if they can come to you and you can calmly respond talk with them about how they're feeling, listen to what they think they saw as opposed to putting your adult spin on it to them because they may have a different interpretation of what they saw. That's really helpful. That's a real moment to dig into that mindfulness because if you panic and yell at them, which is an understandable uh, response and parents have that response because they're terrified that their kid has seen something that they wish they hadn't um, or just you know are panicked and very negative, that, that panic comes through to your child and their response may be to never tell you about anything that they see mm-hmm. again or to worry that you'll take mm-hmm. away their device or the device that they're sharing. And that's 
So in that moment, you want to be as calm as possible and just ask your child some questions, find out what they've seen. Obviously, you don't want to watch it again with them. You may want to choose to see what they saw later to get a sense of what they saw. So these are these are unfortunate milestones of the digital age. And then, you know, the sort of exciting milestone is when do you allow them to have their own device, whether it's a tablet, a phone, <laughs> a gaming device. And that's something that they're probably asking you for. They, they um, are asking me for yeah. my 10 year old has been asking me for that for a while now. And it's amazing. She just graduated fourth grade. But like, it's amazing how many kids I've seen who are a lot younger than her that have their own phones. And it's the funny thing is, is that I can see, like, on one hand, I, I want to wait with this, but it's on one hand, I can see the need. Like, we're pretty internet savvy or pretty digitally savvy family. And so we have only had our cell phones for a long time. And so if we have a babysitter, the babysitter has her cell phone to like call someone. But now that my daughters are 10 and seven, like they're, are, they're doing things on their own. And, you know, it's totally fine for them to bike around the neighborhood and do different things on their own with staying together. But then there's, you know, Matt, my oldest is arguing, you know, well, I need my own, you know, she's like, mommy, can I have a flip phone <laughs> so that I can just, you know, call and it, it's really, and, but I can see the need. Like I would love to just like, you know, be able to go for a 20 minute run and leave the seven year old and the 10 year old like hanging out. But I feel awkward about it because there may not be like a, a phone in the house. Should there be an emergency, you know? These are all really tricky situations. And a yeah. lot of families haven't taught their kids how to call 911, other kinds of things. Uh, do they even know all of our numbers? Because now we have more than one number for them to know. So when I was a kid, I just had to learn my one home phone number. But at minimum, kids now have, you know, probably two parents numbers or a parent and a caregiver. But some kids have, you know, four or five adults in their life where they might need to know their numbers. That's a lot. That so, is a lot. My my girls have mine, my phone number memorized. They memorized that when they were like four, but <laughs> I don't know about anyone else's. I haven't thought about the other phone numbers. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. 
All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Yeah. And when we were their age, they probably, we probably knew all our best friends numbers. So it's certainly possible. Like I, I certainly knew my friend's phone numbers. So I think it's possible for them to, to learn. Um, they need to learn how to make calls. I mean, parents are so overwhelmed by the phone questions that I'm offering a boot camp for parents to help them learn how to deal with this. And I get this question all the time, just how do I know that my kid is ready? How do I know that I'm ready? And a lot of times the question really is, are you as a parent ready? Because the problems that this will solve for you, like knowing that your child's soccer practice got moved or that they want to stay late at at school, it's going to solve those problems, but it is going to add new things to your problem list and your challenge list. So it's not going to really make your life instantly easier. If you do get your child a phone, it's probably Mm -hmm. in the, in the short term going to make your life more complex because you now have to plan to assess your child's skill around the phone. You have to make plans to not have power struggles around when in the house she's going to have access to it. How many minutes or hours a day will you let her be on it? Will you let her keep it overnight or will you do that? There are a lot of questions and I think a lot of people get phones for their children thinking it will solve those problems. Like I mentioned about pickup and things like that and communication or create more independence, but they also sometimes don't recognize all the new challenges that coming their way. And, uh, it's, it, and and that's not a reason not to do it, but I think people should be more prepared and have thought through and also talked with their child a lot more. So that's one of the things I'm working on is, you know, creating some templates for conversations and and Mm -hmm. conversation starters Mm -hmm. about, well, when you come home, do you think you should have your phone right away? Or what about homework? Or when you're walking home from school, what should you be talking to your friends or looking at your phone? These are things that people aren't anticipating. And then they get their child a phone and they see, wow, she's looking at it while she's crossing the street, or he's got friends over, but he's on his phone. Is that okay? Uh, And ideally, some of those are conversations to have before you even get the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, phone etiquette and things like that. Yeah. Um, so when when are people getting when are people getting kids cell phones? And when when is that? What are some ranges of ages for for that being a, a, a healthy milestone? I would look at independent miles, independence milestones more than age. And I'm happy to share I have an article about this. But looking at, you know, can your child make her own lunch? Can they walk to school independently? Can he babysit a sibling in another room for a little while? I'm not, I don't think kids necessarily have to be old enough to do, you know, a full Saturday night of babysitting a small child before they have some kind of communication device, but some ability to supervise themselves or other kids Mm. is a good indicator. Mm. Also social judgment. Is this a kid who can apologize when they make a mistake? How are they dealing with conflict? Do they escalate conflict or are they pretty good at resolving conflict? Mm. Now, no kid is, you know, I I wouldn't say wait for your kid to be Gandhi before you get him a phone. Uh, But if they have no skills on this front, if they can't apologize when they make a mistake, if they are really bad at keeping secrets, 
then I would think twice about a phone because that's not going to make those things easier. And I would really be explicit with them of, well, let's work on the skills about privacy or let's work on the skills about apologizing when we've made a mistake. And then we'll think about a phone. So really look at what are the social skills and the interaction skills, the impulse control, and then also what are the um, kind of independent skills. You know, if your child isn't doing anything to take care of themselves, it's not clear that they're ready to to need their own independent communication. I like this. This is definitely going to work its way into my conversation with with my oldest daughter. So, and you have a whole you had like you said you have a whole boot camp that's going to that'll walk people through. If people are feeling like I'm too overwhelmed with this whole question, you have a whole boot camp to walk them through how to to help kids ha- have their own phone. Exactly. So, starting with considering your own family and your own tech habits, and what are the things that you're you want to model with phone use, and then planning for some boundaries around when your child will have access to the device. And that's a great conversation. Because if you go to the phone store with your child, and they're all excited, and then you come home and say, okay, so you're going to hand it in when you get home from school until homework, and you're going to check it in at eight o'clock every night, you're gonna have a huge power struggle with them. It's better if they know beforehand, when they're going to have access, what your expectations are around family gatherings, will they be able to have their phone out at family gatherings? Um, If you're having a 4th of July picnic in your backyard, uh, will your 12 year old or, you know, however old, old your, your child is be able to have her phone at that event? That's a, that's a good thing to talk about beforehand. I mean, obviously, the course won't, you know, you're not gonna be planning your child's life from middle school through college in the course. But I am suggesting that people think about some of the most common scenarios where people have power struggles, or where kids get into social hot water, and talk with their kids about some of those issues in advance. You know, what will you do if you're on the group text? And your friends are talking in a nasty way about another child. I love that. That's cool. So you mentioned um, you mentioned modeling, and in my my mindful parenting course, we talk about how modeling is the best form of parenting because really kids are terrible at doing what we say and great at doing what we do. So how can we check our own habits around technology, around the screens, to model healthy healthy ways of being with our you know being with this technology for our kids? Well, it's so crucial that we look at ourselves. And I I know that I'm probably the most plugged in member of my own family and the most active on social media. I'm, you know, because of raising digital natives, because of my work, I'm constantly on Twitter, I, you know, and so I have to look at my own behavior and say, hmm, maybe I should put this down. I've learned to close my laptop when my son comes to talk with me, or let him know that I'm busy and when I'll be finished, right? So be really clear when I just look over the top of my laptop at him, he's not satisfied he's not really getting all of me. And so we have to be really clear with our kids, you know, hey, I'm running this webinar, so I can't talk. And this is when I can talk. And it's helpful when kids can tell time, so you can actually make a time and honor the time. Or, okay, I'm closing this, and I'm looking at you, or I'm putting this away. Uh, I think if we just put our phones even on do not disturb, when we're doing bedtime and other things, it may not be enough. If it's physically in my hand, I'm distracted. So I have to really be honest with myself about that and and try to, as much as possible, unplug when I'm with my kiddo. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we need to to look at our own our own habits. Like for myself, like I, I look at email, I try to look at email like about twice a day. And I don't look at it at night, you know, and I, I, I keep my phone off uh, or on vibrate a lot. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, these, these are habits that we really need to look at what, 
you know, what we are doing. Um, and what do you think about now in this whole new digital world with, with these, uh, digital kids? What about, what about boredom? What about the, the power of boredom? Like, do, how do we, uh, what are some, what are some healthy boundaries to set and, uh, with, with kids around screens? That's a great question. Cause I mean, I love boredom and I think boredom is great. And summer is a time where a lot of people find that their kids are, you know, bored and they could spend the whole summer playing video games and, doing things online. So when, when it comes to screen time, I do want to see kids be creative and not just consuming. So if they love to watch cooking shows, maybe they could also make dinner. Uh, And if they want to also videotape making dinner and make it a cooking show, like that would be okay in my house. But certainly I want to see them taking some of these screen interests into real life. If you're so into nature shows, go out and see some nature, you know, track them animals, do some things. Uh, If you're curious about travel, you know, what could you, what could you do in, in real life that, follows up on that curiosity. What can you do uh, to create things that might be really fun and engaging? So I think kids should be bored. It's productive for them to be bored. Uh, I don't have screen time limited by the minute in my house. My kid can watch, you know, usually a certain number of TV shows or play a certain amount of video games. We do have some limits around, you know, sort of evening time and settling down and not having screens, you know, too close to bedtime, that kind of thing. So I think, it really depends what works for you. But if you're lucky enough to be able to just send your kids outside to play independently or with other children, let them be bored, let them figure out what they want to do. And that can be great. Kids can really thrive in a situation where they have to come up with their own fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What about, and and then I think this is my final question for you. It's it's so logistical and (laughs) it's funny, but um, what, what do you, what about, what are your recommendations for helping people get getting kids off? Like when time is up, when, you know, say people do have a time limit and when time is up, how can we model being respectful, being kind, but also have a firm boundary? Yeah. I think it's great for kids to be able to say to their friends, well, I can't be in the online game until I've done my homework or I can't be on the text. I can't text after eight. So for kids to express their boundaries to their friends is helpful. So their friend, they don't feel guilty that they're not there with their friends in these digital spaces. But even for kids who are just watching a show or playing a game on their own, kids can really fall apart when it's time to be done. So Uh (laughs) it's a little bit typical. Like I wouldn't feel like your kid has a pathological problem if they have a few moments of grumpiness when it's time to unplug. If it's more than that, and if it's really wrecking their day, then you may have to really reconsider whether that particular kind of screen time, that show or that game can be part of their day. Some kids can't really watch TV or um, YouTube or other things during the week because they have too much going on and it just doesn't work. Um, The more grumpy your child is after a transition, the more you may have to talk with them and renegotiate, you know, how this is working. Um, I think a little bit of transition time is typical. Like if you are expecting your children to be model guests at a dinner party two minutes after you unplug them from the game. I think that's not realistic. I think most of us would have trouble going right from our intense jog or doing brain surgery or whatever doing a video game feels like, which is a very intense interactive moment for kids and very immersive, right into you know a dinner party without a shower or a transition. So I think it's realistic to expect kids to have a little transition time from these super immersive experiences that they have on screens. But I could also see letting them know. And, and I've seen families do this where wow, if you turn into a monster after an hour of your game, we're going to keep dialing back the time until we get to a a number of minutes where you're not a monster after. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. 
I love that um, approach. Well, thank you so much, Devorah. Is there anything I've, I haven't asked you that I feel that you feel like you should mention for parents who are who are interested in these issues? Well, I definitely write a lot about these questions. I just wrote a blog post about cell phones, and I wrote another one recently about when kids refuse to unplug, which is this exact mm-hmm. question or this issue that we're talking about. So I'd say come find me at RaisingDigitalNatives.com and check out these posts on my blog. And then the other thing I would say is just do look at other parents in your community as a resource. We sometimes judge other parents or worry that they'll judge us because we have different approaches to tech. But I think this is the thing that's keeping our kids really unsafe is that we're not talking enough with other parents in our communities. And so better for parents to be in touch with each other and sharing what they know, because we, we are, we do need to look out for our kids. And if you see something with another child that concerns you, that comes to your attention because your child brings it up or you're supervising your child online and you see, Oh, this, this concerns me. I would reach out to other parents. Parents need to be looking out, not just for our own kids, I think in the, in the digital age, but for all of our kids. I love that. Yeah. Let's, let's be a community and let's, let's just keep these, these wonderful conversations, right? These honest, transparent conversations. I love that. Just modeling that respect. Um, thank you so much, Devora. I really, really appreciate you coming on again to the Mindful Mama podcast and, and sharing your wisdom with us. And everyone, I hope you go check out RaisingDigitalNatives.com and check out Devora's course. And, um, and thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you liked that interview with Devora. I certainly learned things myself on how I'm going to approach things with my daughters and the screen time. The show notes for this will be up at mindfulmamapodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please do leave us a review. Head over to iTunes, leave a review. I'll probably read it, share it here live on the on the podcast. I have some courses available that you can check out this summer, the Stop Yelling Formula, the Daily Practice Course, and the Mindful Parenting Self-Study. Those are all on hunteryoga.com slash work. And I actually have one space open right now for a coaching one because I'm dialing back in the summer so that I can work on my book. Dun, dun, dun. So exciting. Finally, a big thanks to my loving husband, William Fields, for the music. Have a great week, my friends. I hope this podcast has supported your journey, sending you lots of love. Namaste. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.